This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everyone. I'm Father Gravy, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. This episode is about exotic fruits, Caribbean islands, and spiritual childhood. A couple years ago, I went to visit a priest friend of mine who happens to be a pastor on the Caribbean island nation of St. Lucia. He's a native of the island, and staying with him was a lot different than what most Americans might think of when they hear about the Caribbean. This wasn't a fancy cruise or high-end resort. I stayed in his rectory in a small town far from other tourists. It was very much a local experience, the way I like it. All those expensive resorts, this is where the people live who work there. It's not at all wealthy, but the scenery is free. The parish is just a few steps from the beach and the swaying palm trees and warm waters were more than enough. Going for an evening stroll, I'd pass a cafe with a celebration in full swing, people literally dancing in the streets. I had the impression this was a regular occurrence. For sure, these people have many of the same hardships and struggles that are common to the human race. But nature is definitely on their side. One of the benefits of staying with the locals is that you live and eat as they do. At the rectory, there's a large backyard and they grow a lot of their own food. Guavas and bananas, and it's all fresh and delicious. One morning, my host invited me to try a particular fruit from their tree, a sugar apple. I had never heard of this before. It looks sort of like an artichoke and breaks off into these tiny bite-sized pieces that were pure delight. I had never tasted anything like it. And I was amazed. And it really struck me. The older we get, the less we have experiences like that. It's so rare to taste something entirely new and different. You can rave about a certain steakhouse or burger joint that does steaks or burgers really well. But we know what steaks and burgers taste like. Usually the novelty is how well it's prepared or what it's paired with or how it's presented. This was a new thing altogether. It reminded me of a story my great-uncle tells. He was a young man, and he was on his first visit to Europe. He was on a boat sailing to Venice, excited finally to see this fabled city. A man sitting next to him looked like a local. He was in business attire, reading the newspaper, and they struck up a conversation. The man said that he works in Venice and commutes every day by boat. My uncle said, I envy you getting to see this beautiful city every day. The man had a wise response. He said, It is I who envy you, because you only get to see Venice once for the first time. That sense of wonder and discovery of something totally new is a hallmark of childhood. You can only taste so many foods, visit so many cities for the first time. And each new thing is a moment of pure joy. Remember the original Willy Wonka movie with Gene Wilder? 
There's the iconic chocolate room, this wonderland of candies and sweets that, to a kid, looks like heaven. There are giant gummy bears hanging from trees and mushrooms filled with whipped cream, not to mention an enormous chocolate waterfall. The thing is, the child actors had never seen that room before they walked in on camera, and their reactions are completely genuine. Their mouths are agape, breaking into big smiles. They won't react quite the same way the second time they enter that room. There's only one first time. There's a reason why such discovery and joy makes us feel like children all over again. Because childhood is all about discovery. Everything is new. I'm blessed to have a number of nieces and nephews, most of them infants or little children. And you see that sense of wonder all the time. It's fun to share with them books or toys from when I was their age, which become new all over again. It's like entering a fairy tale, when everything is new and strange and different. I've mentioned the Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton in a previous podcast. He says that fairy tales create this alternate world to remind us of how amazing our own world is. He writes, Fairy tales say that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. We need to see things once again through the eyes of a child to be amazed at this beautiful, wonderful world that God has made. Our wonder at this world opens us up to the wonders beyond this world the great undiscovered country that awaits us. That's a big reason why Jesus so often says how important it is to become like a little child, that unless we do so, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about becoming childish, but about becoming childlike. What does that entail? In the first place, spiritual childhood means avoiding the pitfalls that come with age. When we think we have it all figured out, we've seen it all, done it all, tasted it all, been to it all. There's a jadedness, an arrogance that comes with that, when nothing can amaze us or surprise us. We can forget that in God's eyes, we're all little children. It's like a second grader who learns how to add and comes home thinking he knows everything about math. Well, God's like the dad who's a genius mathematician and finds it all amusing and lovable. The greatest minds on earth are even less than that of a child compared to the mind of God. And we really don't have it all figured out. In the words of Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Hamlet's point is that for everything we know, there's infinitely more that we don't. Now, cynics will say that religion fills the void of ignorance. Some ancient cultures that lacked knowledge of weather or astronomy, for example, would attribute thunder or an eclipse to the anger of the gods. This often leads to a false dichotomy between science and religion, between reason and faith. And some people even compartmentalize their beliefs, saying they believe one claim based on scientific evidence and the opposite claim based on religious belief. That's a strange type of schizophrenia that has no place in Catholicism. Because truth is one, and it can't contradict itself. Science and faith complement each other because they both lead us to the God who is truth, 
Look at the account of creation in the book of Genesis. It describes six days during which God created the universe, the sun and the moon, the fish and the birds, and man. When science was able more accurately to date the universe and various species, it's striking that creation unfolded in the same order that Genesis describes, from lower, more primitive life forms to Homo sapiens. Genesis is a poetic telling of that story. We're not talking about literal 24-hour days. After all, we could only measure a day when the sun was created, and that wasn't until the fourth day. Genesis isn't trying to be a science textbook. Its point is that creation has a creator. Another example would be Adam and Eve. However the human species came about, and however long that process took, at a certain point, God breathed a soul into one man and one woman. That gave them a self-awareness, a consciousness, that separates us from all other creatures on earth. The name Adam just means man. Eve means mother of all the living. We've always believed that the whole human race is descended from these two people. Now, science backs up that claim, based on DNA evidence. I think a lot of people have the impression that religion is intellectually impoverished, basically a more respectable form of superstition, that it wilts under any type of vigorous questioning and the believer just sticks his fingers in his ears and closes his eyes. That's so far from the truth. A Catholic monk, Gregor Mendel, is called the father of genetics. A Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre, developed the Big Bang Theory and had to convince a skeptical Albert Einstein. Today, the Vatican operates one of the largest telescopes in the world at their space observatory in Arizona. Theology and science each seek the truth, but they answer different questions. Science answers the what and how and when. Theology answers the why. Science can tell us how old the universe is. Theology tells us why it exists in the first place. Science can tell us how life evolved. Theology tells us the meaning of life. Both are needed to arrive at a complete understanding. But spiritual childhood involves more than just intellectual humility. It means embracing all the best qualities of children, the ones we often and sadly lose as we grow older. In the first place, children have no ego. They do all sorts of silly things and without any regard for what others might think. It's a marked turn when adolescence comes and suddenly they care very much what others think of them. That self-awareness has its benefits, but we ought always to remember that the only one whose opinion of us matters at all is God, and He always gets it right. Children also know they're not self-sufficient. An infant is totally helpless. He can't do anything for himself. He can't feed himself, dress himself, clean himself, even move himself. A child is totally vulnerable, and so are we. We rely on God for everything. Our very existence depends on Him, who created us and sustains us. It's one reason why the poor always have such a special place in our Lord's heart. Often, the wealthier people become, the less they think they need God. They have every need met and comfort provided. And it can lead to a sense that God, if He exists, is irrelevant. What can he possibly give me that I don't already have?
the poor don't fall into that trap. Granted, there are other dangers, such as resentment towards God or envy towards others. But the poor, like children, can't rely on their own resources because they don't have them. They turn to God more easily and readily. Children also have total trust. When they get hurt, they instinctively run to mom and dad. They don't know how, but they trust that mom and dad will make everything right. It's not at all a bad metaphor for the spiritual life. Whatever dangers we face, God will protect us. Whatever spiritual wounds we suffer, God will make it all better. For children, parents are their whole world. They know nothing of global affairs or national politics or how the bills are going to be paid. All the things that cause adults to worry, to get angry or stressed, are totally foreign to children. They just know that mom and dad love them. It's a good reminder of what our focus should be and how easily we can get distracted by things we have no control over. We are loved by God, and that's really all that matters. Children are also much more easily inclined to piety. Piety is a religious sensibility of reverence and respect for holy persons and things. It's lowering our voice when we enter a church because we know we're in a sacred place. It's bowing our head at the holy name of Jesus or kissing a crucifix. It's receiving communion in a manner that reflects our belief that this is actually the body of Christ and not some snack being handed out. Piety is a word that, even in Catholic circles, sometimes gets mocked, mistaking it for a type of naivete or sugary sentimentalism. It can become that, but real piety is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned above how children have no ego, no self-regard. They're not ashamed to look and be devout, the way adults sometimes are. I had a wonderful example of this in my own life. My grandfather, my dad's dad, lived well into his 90s. He and his wife, my grandmother, were a real love story. They were dating in the early 1940s, looking to get married, when Pearl Harbor happened. My grandmother's dad didn't want her to become a war widow. After all, she was only 21, and he encouraged her to wait. Well, they were young and in love and went to see their priest about getting married. He thought they were rushing into things and that it wouldn't last. They didn't give up, though and found a priest willing to marry them. They eloped the Saturday after Pearl Harbor and were married for 72 years. My grandfather died at the age of 96, and in his later years, he would become quite sad that he was no longer able to get to Mass, no longer able to kneel down beside his bed at night to say his prayers. A man almost a century old with the faith of a child. That persistence is also one of the hallmarks of childhood. When you come up with some game or trick that makes children laugh, they want you to do it over and over again. There's no sense of it getting stale or boring. Each time they laugh as if they had never seen it before. Again, Chesterton compares this to the youthfulness of God. He doesn't have to make all daisies look alike, Chesterton writes. It may be that God makes them each separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. There's a line in one of the Psalms that says, I will go unto the altar of God, the God who gives joy to my youth. When we have grown old in sin, 
our innocence lost and our soul wizened, the blood and water that flow from Christ's side become a fountain of youth that rejuvenates and restores us. I think of someone like Mother Teresa in old age who just radiated this youthful, childlike joy, a beauty from deep within. That's what holiness does. It makes us share in the agelessness of God. The idea of not aging, the idea of eternity, can be a challenge for some. People sometimes think that heaven might be boring. There's the initial thrill of seeing God and meeting all the saints, but after a few thousand years it will get a bit old. And then what do we do forever? That's a very human and limited way of looking at it. Time itself will be changed. It's funny, growing up, summer vacation was maybe 10 weeks. But as a kid, it seemed endless. It felt like years. Now, 10 weeks goes by in the blink of an eye. Heaven will be different too. Every moment will be fresh and new, filled with the wonder of being alive, being redeemed, being loved. Our Lord invites us to prepare for that now, through the lessons of spiritual childhood. I was reminded of that at a breakfast table in St. Lucia, discovering something totally new and unexpected, almost like a fairy tale. But I know it was only a taste of things to come, because God's love is even sweeter. And in the paradise of that endless summer, we really do live happily ever after. <laughs>